Galatians chapter 2. Have you ever had a conflict with anyone? Somebody said no, that's a liar. <laughs> Only dead people don't have conflicts. Everybody has conflicts. And um, if you have brothers and sisters, you remember those conflicts quite well. I had, a, I had three big brothers. I'm the youngest of four boys. I was the baby of the family. And uh, my brother Bob was the closest to me, and boy, did we get into fights. Now, Bob was six foot eight inches tall. So he won most of the fights. He would, um, he would, he liked to throw things. He threw bricks at me one time. He even threw me at one time across the yard. He just, um, it was an interesting time growing up with Bob. And I remember when I was quite young and we would get into verbal conflicts, they, they began verbally. And I think this is the only time I remember winning. Um, the voices grew louder, and I'm just a little kid. Voices grew louder, they grew into insults, the insults grew into shoving, pushing, and finally, there was a baseball bat. And I grabbed the bat and I broke his nose with his baseball bat. Now, I know that during these Wednesday night studies, you're getting all sorts of new revelations about your pastor. And listen, I've, I've dealt with my anger since then, and I'm a lot better. I don't use bats anymore. Um, but we had, we had difficult times growing up. And I think all brothers and sisters, to some degree, have conflict problems and need resolution. Some are worse than others. Maybe mine was a little worse than, um, than many of yours. But even in our spiritual family, we find that there are conflicts that we have and we need resolutions to. Disagreements are common. I remember Walter Martin used to say, if there are two people who agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking there are going to be disagreements. Now tonight we are going to look at one of the most famous disagreements in all of biblical history between two heavyweights, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. One gets rebuked by the other. This is the only historical reference that we have to this event. There's no real mention of it in the book of Acts. It's not mentioned by Peter, maybe for obvious reasons. He was the guy that Paul rebuked. But Paul makes mention of it and elaborates on it here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. There's one thing that I admire about the Bible. There are many things. Here's one. The Bible never flatters its heroes. It tells you the truth about them. It doesn't try to paint a false or rosy picture. I'll tell you, I had a really different view of biblical characters growing up in a church and seeing the characters every week in stained glass and on cards or pictures in the Bible. You know, there's pictures in some Bibles and their famous artists paint the apostles. And when I read the biblical account, I found that the picture I had gotten in my mind from the photographs or paint, not photographs, there were no cameras, but paintings, etc., stained glass were far different from the Bible picture. I had the idea that the apostles always smiled real piously. 
and spoke in sanctuary tones to one another, Dear Brother Paul, how art thou? And there was always like music behind them. The choirs were singing whenever they walked into a room. And you know what I found out? They're just like us. Men of flesh and blood, feet of clay. And I also found that not only do people disagree, I found that spiritual people disagree. I started combing through the Bible, and I find the herdsmen of Abraham fighting with the herdsmen of Lot. I find Jacob and Esau fighting, Jacob and Laban, his uncle, having a conflict. The disciples themselves not agreeing. And I've also discovered something else about disagreements, that God reserves the right to use people who disagree with you and with me. We may look at other movements, and we look at how God uses somebody else that doesn't quite believe like we believe about this particular doctrine. And so we have to figure out why God's using them and say, well, it's because of cultic carnal reasons. You know what? God has the right and reserves the right to use all sorts of instruments, imperfect as we all are. Conflicts test us. They, they, they show us our true colors. Because whenever we face a conflict, or let's say even a potential conflict, we can react in the flesh or we can respond in the spirit. Example. Let's say somebody is driving poorly. Now this is just an example. They're driving down the street and they're driving, it's like so lame the way they're driving. They're cutting in front of you, then they're slowing down. And, and You can react in the flesh, you can respond in the spirit. For example, you can ride their tail. You get real close to them and make them nervous and cut them off and give them dirty looks. You could even use colorful words, I hope you don't, or gestures, I hope you don't. And, and you can get worked up into a lather, getting all upset that this, in your words, idiot is on the road sharing the road with you. And so by the time you get to wherever you're going, you're just steaming. Or you can respond in the spirit. Now, the other day, it just so happened that I had this happen to me. I have this happen to me a lot for some reason, but I'm, I'm driving down the street and there was an interesting driver and, and um, this driver was driving erratically and I started getting really upset, like, come on, get pull over, just go to Taco Bell and just stay an hour there or something, move out of the road. And I started getting worked out, and it was like the Lord started showing me, okay, you can react that way, and you're going to hinder yourself, because he doesn't know what you're thinking or saying. Or you can respond spiritually. And I go, well, how? Like, what do you mean? Well, have pity on him. If this guy drives like this all the time, maybe you should pray for him that he won't hurt other people, that he won't hurt himself, that he'll get to where he's going safely. And I thought, you know, you got to be kidding. Pray for him. But I did. And I found that this tension just sort of becomes alleviated, goes away. 
Instead of reacting in the flesh, I can respond in the spirit. So conflicts test us of which way we're going to handle the situation. Now, we don't always handle conflict well, personally, corporately. Unfortunately, even in many churches, churches don't always handle conflict well. We, we love retaliation. There's something about our flesh that when somebody gets even with somebody else, we go, oh, yeah. Like the guy who went to the barber. The barber had a sour attitude, always wanted to engage this man in conflict. Barber had a bad attitude about life. The client was the salesman. The client sits down in the chair and tells the barber his plans that he is going to go to Rome, Italy. Why would you want to go to Italy? What a raspy place. Nothing good can come out of Italy. It's so overrated. It's so expensive. And where are you staying? And he told him the hotel. Oh, that hotel is the worst hotel. You couldn't have picked a worse one. And what airlines do you fly? And he told him, oh, man, of all airlines, that's like, you'll never get there. What are you going to do when you're in Rome? He goes, well, I plan to make a big sale. I, I'm a businessman, and I, I'm going to do business. Oh, don't, you can't do business in Rome. You can't trust them. And then the man said, then I, I, I want to, I'm going to see the Pope. You can't see the Pope. He won't have an audience with you. He only sees important people. You're not important. Two months later, the salesman returned to the barber. Barber said, how was the trip? The guy said, it was really good. The airlines was great. The hotel was great. Good service. Great hotel. I made a big sale when I was in Italy, and I saw the Pope. You did, said the barber. What did he say? He goes, well, actually, when I bent down to kiss his ring, he looked at me and said, where'd you get such a lousy haircut? <laughs> There's something satisfying about that story. Well, Peter could have been tempted to think the same way because of something that Paul did. Verse 11. Let's just read some of these verses. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Now let me just go through the story with you, and then we'll give you these principles that we draw from the story on how to have a good fight. First of all, we see Peter being reprimanded by Paul. Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. And yet, an outsider who wasn't with the inside group with Jesus, like the other 12 were, is rebuking Peter. Now, I guess my question is, how does this square with the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope? How does this square with the doctrine of ex-cathedra? That the spoke, Pope speaks ex cathedra when he makes a, an official declaration from the chair, ex cathedra, 
It is done. It is like the word of God. When you have Peter acting a certain way and he's rebuked by somebody else, and it's a favorable response. Actually, this is an internet question that we got um, this week from John. Uh, he says that the Catholics have told me that Peter was the founder of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm speaking from also experience here because that's how I was personally raised. From looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, which gives us a glimpse of Peter's character and looking at the traditions of the Catholic Church, this seems to fit. Can you clarify it? Now, John, with all due respect, I don't see how it does fit because Peter isn't the one rebuking. He's the one being rebuked. Number two, it says that men came out being sent from James to Antioch, which clearly shows us that not Peter, but James was the apostle in charge of overseeing the church in Jerusalem. The first church was governed by the bishopric of James, not Peter. So if you want to go back to papacy, it would be James, not Peter, who was to be considered the first pope. So this doesn't fit with the text at all. Peter is the one being rebuked. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. This is what happened. Evidently, Peter had made it from Jerusalem up into Syrian Antioch, where Paul launched his ministry, where Paul saw scores of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Peter had learned a lesson by the time he comes to Antioch. Keep in mind his frame of experience. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 10 when there's a guy named Cornelius who's a Roman centurion? And he's praying one day and an angel appears to him and says, Go down to Joppa to the house of Simon the Tanner. There's a guy staying with him named Simon Peter. Send for him. He'll tell you what you need to do because, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. At the same time that the angel tells him that up in Caesarea, down in Joppa, Peter, around lunchtime, noontime, is up on the rooftop. He's hungry. He falls into sort of a trance, and he sees a vision of this huge gourmet feast, a sheet being let down out of heaven with all sorts of food items on it presumably cooked, but unkosher. And the Lord tells him, Peter, get up, eat it. And Peter, being the compliant apostle that he was, said, Not so, Lord. I've never had anything unkosher. It's unclean. I've never touched anything unclean or common. The vision happened three times. Until finally, it's like, you know, three strikes, Peter, and you're out. Don't call common what I have cleansed. And Peter's standing there going, Huh? What is that all about? I don't get it. Just then, there's a knock on the door. And the group from Cornelius says, Hey, we're here for this Peter guy. Now, as they're down at the door, the Lord speaks to him and said, There's a guy named Cornelius, and he sent some guys to go get you. Go and ask no questions. So Peter comes down from the rooftop. The first thing he does... Ask them questions. Who are you here? Why are you here? What are you doing? Who sent you? That's Peter. Then he goes all the way up to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. 
Caesarea is a Roman centurion. Uh, uh, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Peter walks into his house. Cornelius tells him the story, and Peter says, Now you know, fellas, that it's not right for me, a Jewish man, to even enter the house of a Gentile, somebody from another nation. But I feel like God has been speaking to me lately, telling me that what I have called unclean and common, that God can cleanse. And as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and he realizes that God is doing a work among non-Jews. So it's a revelation to him. Well, he gets back to Jerusalem. And these legalistic Jews in Jerusalem, they're Christian Jewish folks, say, you went into the house of a Gentile and you ate with them. And Peter has to tell them the story. Look, God did a wonderful work, and so they all rejoiced. So that's Peter's background. Peter comes to Antioch. He hangs out with everybody. He'd sit down with Jews. He'd sit down with Gentiles. He'd have a nice meal with Gentile people, which shows that Peter has broken through the barriers of tradition. He's free in grace. He's free in the Spirit. Until this same group that troubled him comes up to Antioch. They're legalistic. They're probably the Judaizers. They're the kind that think Gentiles should be separated from the Jews. So Peter, who used to fellowship with everybody, now separates himself and eats only with the Jewish brethren and leaves the Gentile brethren on their own. Now, why did Peter do that? Did he do it because God gave him a revelation? No. Did he do it because there was a tremendous conviction in his heart that what he's been doing up to this point has been wrong morally, ethically, biblically? No. He did it because he was afraid, the text says. He was afraid of certain men. And what does Proverbs 29 tell us? The fear of man brings a snare. Peter, the great apostle, is ensnared by what other people think about him. So he's kept from doing what is right because of the fear of men. Now what's the result of this? Other people were swayed to follow Peter's example. After all, this is Peter, one of the big three. Peter, James, and John. So if Peter's doing this, we'll do it as well. Look at verse 14. What does Paul do? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, I think he's using irony in that, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. These monitors are going off. Maybe you could shut them down. They're just putting out a lot of noise. If, verse 17, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, 
then Christ died for nothing or needlessly. There are times when confrontation is a sign of carnality. Sometimes we are angry at another person or a group of persons because they're not responding to my need the way I think they should be responding to my need. So I voice my opinion. I confront them. I can couch it in spiritual terms, but it could be basically, I'm mad because it's all about me.com. That's how I live. Now this is even seen in the Bible. James and John were down in Samaria, and the Samaritans didn't quite respond the way James and John thought they should respond. They didn't receive Jesus so well. And so what they said and suggested to Jesus is, how about, Lord, if we call fire down from heaven and destroy these wicked sinners? They weren't treated the way they thought they should be treated. They deserve judgment. They're ready to call down fire from heaven. These are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind next time you think of the stained glass halo in the hall. Peter here, James and John willing to call fire down from heaven. I, I, I picture James and John with, with leather robes, you know. <laughs> the disciples with an attitude. But sometimes confrontation is not necessarily a sign of carnality. Sometimes it's a sign of spirituality if it's done for the right motive. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal and the nation of Israel who had fallen into idolatry. He did it. He put himself on the line because he cared for the ultimate glory of God, the restoration of Israel, and the fact that these false prophets were making inroads into his culture and among his people. That was a sign of spirituality, not carnality. This is a great example of spirituality, not carnality. Martin Luther had to make a stand on this very issue, that a man is justified by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works, not by religion, not by a system. And he was killed for it. Now, listen to this before we move on. A lot of us hate confrontation. We just hate it. We'll, we'll avoid it for any reason, and, and we always say, well, it's, it's unloving. Sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do. It's hard. You put yourself on the line. You become vulnerable. You become embarrassed. But sometimes it's the most loving thing you can do for a person. We have a false idea, some of us, of unity. We think unity means that every Christian around the world is going to all hold hands in a big celebration meeting and we're all going to sway back and forth and we're all going to sing Kumbaya, my Lord. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Kumbaya. Oh, this is the unity Jesus prayed for. Okay, that's cool. You had your little emotional time, but that's not necessarily unity. Sometimes confrontation is a blessing if it's done in the right way. So having said that and having gone through the story, let's go back and just pick out quickly five ways to have a good fight because you're going to have them. Number one, make sure that you know the truth. Make sure that you know the truth. Verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face 
because he was, notice, clearly in the wrong. Oh, really? He was clearly in the wrong? Well, what did he do? I mean, did he speak heresy? Was this some false doctrine he was spreading? No. He wasn't a false apostle. However, he was sending mixed messages. You see, on one hand, he'd eat with Gentiles. I love you, brother, man. We're all one in Christ. But then certain people came and he'd say, can't eat with you. So he's sending a mixed message. The mixed message is he is affirming the dietary regulations that came through the Old Testament and saying, well, actually, I agree with them all, and I can't eat with you because you're not eating kosher, and I'll get defiled if I hang out with you. I don't want your cooties, basically. He did it out of fear. He's sending a mixed message, preaching grace, but by his actions denying grace. So, number one, we have to know what we're up against. We have to know the truth, not just walk into a situation and react. How do we know the truth? By knowing the Bible. Do you have to be a Bible expert? Do you have to be Theodore Theologian? No. But you need to know what the Bible says about the issue you're dealing with enough to get into the situation and have the tools that are necessary. Learn the Word of God. Learn the tools that are in the Bible. Is the situation you're walking into clear in the Scripture and clear to you at this moment? I've always loved the story about the Department of Counterfeit Currency at Scotland Yard. The fellow who ran it was interviewed by someone who said, Boy, it must be hard for you to have to study counterfeit currency all day long. He said, I don't. I study the real thing. I study real money. And I study it so much, I'm so familiar with it, that when a counterfeit comes along, I can spot it because I haven't studied the counterfeit, but I'm so familiar with the authentic. And so when we know the truth and it's clear in our minds, we're able to spot false stuff. Now let me just make a plea really quickly for discernment. When somebody tells me something, I immediately want to believe it. I take it at face value. I don't believe there's a hidden agenda. There's no innuendo. I want to believe the highest because I think love thinks the highest. However, just add a cup of discernment to that. Realize that we're dealing with imperfection, human beings, we're all imperfect, we're all subject to failure or misinterpretation. And one of the gifts of the Spirit is discernment. So don't be afraid to ask questions. If somebody tells you something and it's like, hmm, question mark, ask some questions. It says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I've collected letters that I've gotten over the years from different individuals. And these letters have a common thread. Basically, the letters say, you are in error and in judgment of God to be condemned. I, however, am God's apostle and God's spokesman. And God told me to tell you this. And the only way God would ever speak to you is through me, because I have the inside track. When I get these letters, now I smile at them. In fact, they're entertaining, some of them. But the first thing I do is I bring it before the Lord. And I say, Lord, is there something here you want me to know? 
I want to be open to correction. Then I'll bring it to others who I work with, who I believe have discernment and are spiritually mature, and say, what do you guys think about this? Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, it is. So you all agree on that? I mean, we've prayed about it and we've checked the word. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely off the wall. I know who this guy is or whatever, or this gal. And I was gone this week, but we had an interesting thing happen between first and seven, second service. Some of you reacted as if you're familiar with it, probably more than I am, but this guy came up. He had a message from God. He said, and he... Uh, had these three pages, and he was going to lay it on the pulpit. Oh, this is a message from God. i got to put it here. Where Terry Willis was here. You know Terry. Terry, where are you? Are you here? Okay, he's backslidden. He's not here tonight. But um, <laughs> Terry's a big guy. And this guy was kind of like, you know, standing up against Terry, which shows automatically he has no discernment, because you don't go against Terry if he says, Brother, don't do that. And Terry's very gentle, but this guy's still going to do it. It's like, okay, right there we can say, no discernment. <laughs> and it was an interesting confrontation because the guy was had to be taken down and placed on the floor in the back, and uh, Terry just sort of knelt on him, <laughs> kept him on the ground, called the authorities. Authorities handcuffed this person. And uh, the psychiatric ward came over and said, oh, yes, we know this fella. He's been around a long time. He... Almost had to shoot him the other night because he threatened somebody down on Central. So, not everyone with a message from God really has a message from God. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is rule number two, go in person. It says, I withstood him to his face. Notice that. It didn't say, I opposed him behind his back. I gossiped profusely while he wasn't around. I shared my prayer concerns with everybody else so they could pray with me about this horrible burden I was carrying, and he never knew about it. That's cheap. That's low. Go in person and talk to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus said, and we quoted Matthew 18 before. Let me read it to you. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the fault. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you. Go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So the first thing you do in a confrontation is go to the person first. You may win your brother. It may be over with that. Now, if it isn't over with that, you take these other steps. But you always do it in the spirit of meekness, right? And now what Paul says, if a brother is overtaken in any fault, you who are spiritual, make sure that you fit that qualification, that you approach that person in the spirit of meekness to restore him. The word restore in Greek means to set a broken bone, to mend something broken. So the purpose of the confrontation is to bring healing. Not further division. Not, I'm going to show you who's right. The issue isn't who's right. The issue is what's right. So, number one, make sure you know the truth. Number two, make sure you go in person. Rule number three, choose your battles carefully. Choose your battles carefully. Ask yourself, is this a hill you want to die on? I mean, are you willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe over this issue? Is this a big deal? 
Well, we might ask Paul that. Okay, Paul, come on. Is this a big deal? So he ate with Gentiles and he ate only with Jews. So what? Ah, it was a big deal. Because, you see, it was all about acceptance. You see, Peter's actions showed, well, I can't accept you. I can't eat with you. Which reflects a message as if to say, God, who we've been preaching all along, accepts anybody by faith, can't accept you unless you eat these right kind of foods. So it sent a mixed message and a confused message of what the true gospel was. And it would also cost these Gentiles precious fellowship with Peter. Christianity was in danger of becoming divided into specialty groups, just like the synagogues. You know, if you and I lived a couple thousand years ago and wanted to go into a synagogue, if we said, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I want to worship here in the synagogue, I believe what you believe, because you weren't under the covenant of the Jewish nation, you weren't a circumcised individual, uh, you weren't allowed into immediate fellowship, there was a chamber that Gentiles were kept and confined in during the synagogue service. You couldn't just hang out next to your Jewish brother up front. Hey, bro, what's happening, man? God bless you. Men were on one side. Women were on the other side. And God-fearers, they were called, that is, pious Gentiles, were kept in a back chamber. Even in the temple, there were courts of division and a wall that went around that said, death to any Gentile past this point. So the church was in danger of erecting these barriers that Judaism had become infamous for. And that's why... This was a battle Paul wanted to fight. Now, why did he do this? Because something is at stake. I don't know if you picked up on this phrase, but look at the phrase, the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's the same phrase you find in verse 14. Notice that. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in this manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? The whole issue with Paul was the truth of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? The truth of the gospel is that we, sinners, under the condemnation of God, can be accepted by God as his child in relationship with him based upon the finished work of his son on the cross and his death is enough not our works his death enough to give us fellowship with him that's the truth of the gospel and Paul was adamant about this Paul was so adamant about the truth of the gospel that in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 he pronounced a curse on anyone who tampers with the message in Jerusalem, he refused to yield even for an hour, he said, when it came to the truth of the gospel. And with Peter, the heavyweight apostle, he rebuked because of the truth of the gospel. The issue can be summed up by one word. It's the word justification. Whenever I deal with people of different spiritual persuasions who say they are Christians... I always bring up this issue. How does a person get to heaven? Tell me your doctrine of justification. Now I might say that and they go, huh? 
Justification is by what means does God declare you righteous? Well, I'm a good person. I go to church every week. I help people out. I give my money. Wrong answer. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 spells it out plainly. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Picture the scene. It's a courtroom scene. God is the judge. It's a solemn occasion. The accused is led into the courtroom. His name's Skip Heitzig. Oh, there's a list of sins miles long on Skip Heitzig. Attitude while driving. <laughs> Thoughts concerning different ones through his life, things he has done, things he has thought, things he has said. The prosecuting attorney is clever and knowledgeable. His name is Satan. Before the entire courtroom, he rattles off this list of sins and he says, and look, I have so many exhibits, I don't have enough time to give you all the stuff he's done. And then he calls to the stand a witness. His name is Moses. And Satan says to Moses, is it true that Skip Heitzig is guilty of breaking these laws? Yep. He's guilty as charged. So I'm nervous. I'm trembling. I know it's all true. I have no alibi. It's true. There's the evidence. Just then, my defense attorney walks up to the bar. His name is Jesus Christ. And he leans over like he's familiar with the judge. And he goes, hey, Dad. We both know it's true. He is guilty as charged. Satan, in this case, is right. Moses confirms as a witness that he's right. And we both know that he deserves the death penalty. He deserves judgment. He deserves hell. Right, son? But we both also know that his penalty was paid a couple thousand years ago by me. Here's my blood to prove it. Judge looks over at me. Winks, smiles, puts the gavel down. Case dismissed, he's acquitted. And I go free. Now, is it because I did so many great things? I was such a good person. I had a nice look. I had a nice tie on that day. It's all about my defense attorney, Jesus Christ, who not only is the best defense attorney, he paid the price. And so I can be justified, declared righteous, a declaration by God is given that I'll impute to Skip all the righteousness of my son and I will impute to my son all of the sin and filth and transgression of Skip on him. That's why it is an insult to Christ and an insult to the Father to say, well, it's my faith in Christ plus my faithful membership and the fact that I read ten chapters a day that I'm going to heaven. You can't add anything to it. That's why this was a battle that he wanted to fight. And uh, we're glad that he did. Okay, let's go to rule number four. Be accountable. Be accountable. There's a level of accountability that Paul brings into this. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Now Barnabas was like Paul's right-hand assistant his co-laborer in spiritual ministry. When I saw 
that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and so on. Now that means probably in front of all of those who acted just like Peter, in front of Barnabas and the other Jews that were led astray. He rebuked all those who were going astray, not all one-on-one, -on -one, but because they had all done it. This was probably a series of confrontations. He said it all to them. Or it means that he exposed their hypocrisy publicly in front of the entire church. I don't know which. A lot of people would vie for that last one. But here's the point. Paul brings it into a level of accountability. It was Augustine who said it's not advantageous to correct in secret an error that has occurred publicly. And here's why. Unless the church deals with sin, people think the church doesn't care about sin. It's just going to wink its eye at it, doesn't take sin seriously. And Paul knew that this was a big enough issue that required at this point some accountability. And here's the point for us. In a confrontation, if it's an issue you know the truth about, you go to the person about, you've tried to do everything you can, weigh in on it. Express what you feel about it to give that person or group of persons a chance to rebut or to recant. Conflicts require a level of accountability. There must be some group that holds the standard by which that person or persons are accountable. And in our context, it's easy. It's the church of Jesus Christ. We are to handle conflict within the church this way. Number five, and we'll close with this. Be known more for what you're for than for what you're against. Be known for what you're for more than for what you're against. Verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That is, when Christ died, I'm identified with him so that God sees my life of sin as done with at the cross, over with. He deals with me not as a sinner, but as his son, his child. So I identify with the crucifixion. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Listen, Paul wasn't against Peter. He was for Jesus. Paul wasn't against the law of Israel per se. He was for salvation by grace. And Paul was known more for what he was for than what, what he was against. Keep something in mind here. Paul isn't bringing up this confrontation. Paul did not confront Peter to his face and then publicly just because he liked to do it. And Paul isn't bringing up this issue of his past actions because he likes to confront people. He's doing it because he was attacked by the Judaizers. Keep that in mind. Paul wasn't the guy who went on the attack. He went on the defense of the gospel because others attacked him and said, you're not a true apostle. You don't preach the true gospel. 
So Paul had to defend his actions to show that his gospel was given by God and that he was acting in accordance with it. It's important to realize that. Sometimes people will say, why do you mention the Mormon church? Why do you attack them? We're not attacking the Mormon church. If you know your history, you know it is the Mormon church that has attacked every other Christian religion. Read their history. The angel Moroni said, no other religion, no other Christian denomination preaches the truth. They're all lies. They're all heresy. Only you have the truth, and you must speak it. Well, when that kind of an accusation is leveled against the historic Christianity, the Church of Jesus Christ, it behooves us, as Jude said, Jude, verse 3, put up a good fight for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. We're not attacking, we're defending the attack. But we should be known more for what we're for rather than for what... You know, some people, you look at their lives, you look at their ministries, you know what they're against. Everyone that doesn't agree with everything they believe in. And that's their trademark. They're always mad. They're always finding something wrong. They're like spiritual Grinches. Or Scrooges. Bah humbug. Some pastors make this mistake. They go into an area of the country. Immediately they set up shop. and They just start going down the list of attacking every single person that's not their little church. And you're not going to win a lot of friends that way. You're going to make a lot of people mad. So go in and first just show the love of Christ. Teach the Bible. Teach what the truth is. Be known for what you're for more than for what you're against. And then verse 21, we close with this. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let that sink in as you go home. If we could be saved by any other way besides Jesus going to the cross, then why did he go to the cross, Paul is saying? It was a needless act. If Jesus was just a nice man to give good teachings and a great example and have everybody hug and sing Kumbaya, that's all you have to do. Get along, love each other. And all he was was one of many examples. Paul is saying, to them, what was the cross all about? Why the blood? Why the pain? Why the substitute? Why the sacrifice? Because he proved as he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The fact that he did go to the cross proves ain't no other way to get saved. No other way to get to heaven but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in hearing that, you can admit it. Yep, that's right. We're all sinners, but I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to reform myself. I bought a cool book. It's a self-help book. It teaches me how to be righteous. I'm going to do that. Or you can go, oh, I don't believe in that stuff that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. Ah, and you can live in denial. Or you can admit it and trust the Savior, accept the remedy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the gavel goes down and God says, not guilty. I impute to you the righteousness of my son and I impute to my sinless perfect son 
all of your sin, all of your transgression, all of your disobedience, that's the exchange, that's the deal I'll make with you. When somebody first told me that, I said to him, you got to be kidding. That's a rotten deal for God. Why would he want all of my filth, all of my sin, and give me all of his righteousness? The guy said, dude, I don't know, but it's what the Bible says. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. Then I got to thinking, if he's right, it might be a rotten deal for God, but it's a good deal for me, and I'm an idiot if I pass it up. So that afternoon, I didn't pass it up any longer. I bowed my head, I bowed my heart, and I said, okay, Lord, I make that deal that you have made with me. Take my sin, cleanse me, wash me, I become your child. 